Thank you, I guess. <laughs> I don't know why, but those countdowns always fascinate me. I, I always feel like starting up. Let's go. Who's going to get drunk tomorrow? <laughs> Who's going to... Because I... My name is Don, an alcoholic. And as a result of a loving God and the kindness of A, it hasn't been necessary for me to take a drink since September 14th, 1955. (laughs) However, I did. But with your kind and compassionate nature, you welcomed me back, and it wasn't necessary to take a drink after August 14th, 1958. But I did. <laughs> you know, you can melt that quite a ways, actually. It's, uh, as it, You know, there are probably people here who were born after 1955, aren't there? <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's when I gave my first AA talk. Uh, I attended a stag meeting in Beverly Hills by accident. I was looking for a job, and I had called this attorney. And he said, yeah, I'll, I'll interview you. Meet me at the Roxbury Park at 8.30 at night next Wednesday. And I thought, that's a kind of a strange place for a business meeting. I mean, a park. But I'd heard about Hollywood. And, and so I got there, and it was an AA meeting. And Wednesday night, I really wasn't in that bad shape. I mean, I had, I actually had tapered off quite a bit on Monday. I think I even had some soup on uh, Tuesday. <laughs> uh, so by Wednesday, I really wasn't trembling and shaking. I mean, I was very quick, but I, I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> And it turned out to be an AA meeting, and they were the most amazing and delightful and clever people. It was a men's stag in Beverly Hills. It's still going on, if any of you are ever there. Uh, and it was, it was just incredible. I mean, uh, Chuck was there. He'd been sober three or four years, and uh, Jackie of Queen for a day was there. I mean, it, And these guys were just tremendous, and I, I was fascinated by it. And it was a five-minute point-your-finger short-pitch meeting, and at the end of it, the speaker looked around, the leader looked around, he said, now let's see, who will we get to close it? How about the young fellow here with the shiny black hair? (laughs) That was your humble speaker (laughs) 44 years ago. And uh, I got up because I'm a quick study. I take on the coloration of any environment in which you throw me, chameleon-like. Put me in jail, I see that art is the shtick here. I become a regular. <laughs> but I'll screw. Uh, <laughs> afraid somebody's going to put the arm on me, but, uh. In the, I've been a member of A now for, oh, about an hour and a half, and I could see that humility was the gig here. 
And so I got up and I gave him five minutes of pathos, five minutes of laughter, ended on a rising note of hope, uh, and sat down. And they swarmed around me to touch the hem of my garment. <laughs> and one of them said, you haven't spoken out the Royal Seiko recently, have you? Now, I just drunk my way down from San Francisco with a brief stop in a mental hospital for some undergraduate work. <laughs> so I had no idea what the Royal Seiko was, so I was reasonably certain I hadn't spoken there. And he said, well, I'm leading the meeting next Tuesday or whatever it is. Would you come and be my main speaker? And I said, certainly. Always glad to help the poor devil crushed by the juggernaut demon rum. <laughs> So in those days, uh, they used to say, is there anyone, they didn't, when they asked for newcomers, they'd say, is there anyone here for their first, second, or third meeting? I couldn't raise my hand, you know, because I was the main speaker, and I felt it might hurt the image for the newcomer. <laughs> so this time, I had the better part of an hour, and I, I gave them a little more pathos, a little more humor, ended on a soaring note of hope, and... Uh, if you can make two people laugh, you're going to get two invitations for every talk you make. And so within a month, I was booked up solid. <laughs> I, I was staying sober on the novelty of a solid bowel movement and applause. The only thing is that uh, the novelty of grunting in the morning wears off. But by the way, that is not a, a sniggering thing. I notice you people who are made of sterner stuff might laugh about that, but that was a terrible malady that, uh, as a result of a fever I had in the Army. My first spiritual experience was a solid bowel movement. I, I know you laugh, those of you who, who didn't suffer from it, but... You'll never know the sense of worth, <laughs> the rise in self-esteem, yea, verily the certainty of manly virility, the first time you're able to break wind without fear of following through. <laughs> That really should get you one birthday cake at least. <laughs> and it got me two. And that was the way it went for a while. I, I would be sober for two years drunk. I used to count my birthdays. One, two, one, two, one, two. And, I, and people would try to help me. They'd say, Don, you, you've got to get into the book and... and study more and take an inventory. And I would take out rod reel, go up the stream of consciousness looking for character defects, and I'd still have trouble. And they'd say, well, you, you've got to help the newcomer, not drag him in off the bar stools, ready or not, an alcoholic or not, and, and I'd still have trouble. 
And they would say, well, you've got to get more spiritual. And I would pursue God up and down the byways of the San Fernando Valley, and I'd still have trouble. And then, uh, be 36 years ago this year, I decided to quit drinking. <laughs> and I haven't had any trouble since. Uh, you know, I know it. it, it is... I'm certain here, particularly uh, with the relatively number of people who were relatively new in their sobriety, there are probably people right here tonight who are wondering if they're really alcoholic. You know, as if their opinion meant a damn. (laughs) I mean, what difference does a diabetic's opinion of his condition have to do with it? Or a man with hemorrhoids, if he can get into a position to view them. I mean... uh, It is absolutely irrelevant. It determines how you're going to die, whether after a relatively long and fruitful life or down in the gutter chewing your tongue, despised by everybody who had the misfortune to come into contact with you. But that's not a big thing, really, except to you. It's true, you know, we don't endanger Western civilization. We're not that well organized. But if there is anyone here wondering if they're an alcoholic, uh, I'll tell you, it's easy. If you have any doubt, ask yourself this one question and be candid in the response and you'll know. Ask yourself this, am I now or have I ever been in attendance at an AA meeting? (laughs) If the answer is yes, you're an alcoholic. Non-alcoholics don't come to AA and ask questions like that. would be like a virgin going in for a rabbit test. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's absurd. If you're here, you're an alcoholic. Uh, we'll move on to something else. Uh, by the way, I this uh, format here is probably the closest I have seen anyone describing how I approach the program. Uh, and it, don't take yourself too seriously, it says, but it should add, don't take your speakers too seriously either. <laughs> During those eight years when I was in and out, I continued to speak. I felt I would sober up and make all of the talks on my calendar. I felt I owed it to the newcomer. <laughs> But the, if you have this, I hope you were here last night and, and made some meetings today, because the speakers last night were incredible. If you have not yet heard anything that uh, impresses you, go out and drink some more. You're not ready. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Marty was absolutely in touch with this program. I mean, that was almost unintelligible. And I had the good fortune to know uh, Sheila's dad. And uh, when she mentioned who her dad was, Jim Shaw, you know, I thought maybe it was Children of Chaos, maybe it was about her. You know, I, uh, 
Jim helped me one time very much. He, AA will always bring a solution to virtually anything. And Jim was a plumber. And I had had, I bought this house out in the San Fernando Valley there, and after a while, the toilets wouldn't flush. They would go down for a little bit and then up and down. And so I asked Jim, you know, you get the answer to whatever you need in AA. They say everything you need to know is in the big book, but I, I couldn't find anything about sewer there. And uh, so I, I asked Jim, and he said, oh, undoubtedly you got some tree roots or something that's growing in and blocking the line going out. And I said, well, could I get you to come out and fix it? I'll, you know, I'll pay you. And he said, no, no, it, not, not. They said, I charge too much per hour. And the, the biggest part of it is digging up the ditch to get to this pipe. He said, do that, get, you know, get some guys, do that yourself, and then I'll come and, and take a look at it and fix it for you. I said, oh, okay, I guess. Well, some other guy was standing there listening to this, and he said, I'll help you, Don. I know all about plumbing. <laughs> and I, I, I said, well, what, what do you mean? What do you know? He said, nothing to it. All you have to know is crap runs downhill and you get paid on Friday. <laughs> And another guy standing there hearing this intellectual conversation going, he said, well, I'll be glad to help with the with the digging. I'm real good at digging ditches. He said, but I need to write tools. And I said, well, what do you mean, write tools? We need to pick a shovel? He said, no, no, I need some guy standing behind me with a shotgun. <laughs> said, uh, I was on a chain gang down in Georgia, and, they, <laughs> and I need somebody saying, get it up, you ain't get it up. And, uh, so we got it, uh, we got it solved. I, uh, I did catch most of, uh, Bruce's there today. I, he's only 68. <laughs> God, good to see you young people coming in. Uh, let his beard grow a little too long to try to look mature. But, uh, <laughs> But I, I didn't catch the speakers, other speakers this morning. I'm sorry about that, but uh, I definitely going to get a copy of the tape to listen to them. But I, as I travel around, and I don't do as much of it as I used to, but I like to get and see some of the area in addition to seeing the people. I, I'm a loner. I mean, truly, other people talk about being a loner, but I enjoy being alone, and I. I get more spirituality after climbing to the top of a mountain or walking through some secluded glen than I do even with the greatest AA conventions I've attended. And uh, a young fella here gave me uh, directions out to Boone Cliffs and Middle Fork. Uh, They're uh, absolutely beautiful, quiet, and I would recommend it to to anybody who's into movement at all. I mean, it was it was truly great. Spider webs over the trail, you could hardly move, but the spiders ate the gnats, and uh, it, it, it was great. It, it truly was. I, I'll protect his anonymity and just call him Sean Foley. Uh, <laughs> but that's how I happened to miss the morning one. Uh, another thing I think it was uh, Marty did that I think is a good idea. People hear these on tape, and they can't quite visualize what it is like. And for those of you who are hearing it 
order to delete. This is a room in which there are about 700 extraordinarily happy, clean-cut, nice-looking people, with many of them with small sticks coming out of their mouth. <laughs> The meeting is non-smoking, and being held in Kentucky, uh, they handed out suckers <laughs> for those of us who had to endure it. You know, and I, I kept uh, waiting, really, for somebody like uh, Tony when he was wearing his shorts today. Uh, I, I thought a couple little guys would come up and say, we are the lollipop kids, the lollipop kids, the lollipop kids. We are the lollipop kids. Welcome you to Munchkin Land. Uh, but I, for those. Uh, of us who had to quit uh, smoking, uh, we appreciate it. It, 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 is a, it is a great help. I, uh, I, I come from the backwoods of Oregon, you know, and I, I know what smoke does to raw meat. We used to have a smoke shed behind the house where we hung the venison, but for 35 years I made lung jerky. You know. uh, <laughs> and uh, finally got a mantra to repeat from a doctor, emphysema, and. Uh, it, when you only have to choose between breathing and smoking, it, it becomes relatively easy. I mean, you <laughs> get on your knees and bark like a dog for a week, but uh, <laughs> other than that, it's nothing. Uh, so I do appreciate it. The, you know, it's odd, however, when you talk about smoking, it has nothing to do with our program in one sense, and yet in another, it's kind of typical. During all the year, the things they ask about the alcoholic are not what they ask the smoker, because only one person in ten, roughly, who drinks is going to be an alcoholic, and the other nine don't understand, and they ask you silly questions. They don't ask the smoker. No one, those of you who smoke, I know one or two still do. Uh, <laughs> has anyone ever come up to you and said, Bill? Why did you start smoking? Was it lack of self-esteem? <laughs> Failure to close an Oedipus triangle? Improper bowel training? Are you the child of smoking parents? <laughs> I mean, they don't ask nutty questions like that. They know why you started smoking. When you're 14 or 15 and you want to look grown up and manly, what is a manly thing to do? Smoke. At least, well, in my generation now. Back, look at any motion picture made in the 30s and the 40s. Everybody smoked. Everyone. And I remember Paul Onreed. He lit two at once, gave one to Betty Davis, and got laid just like that. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I start smoking? <laughs> yeah, but they ask you that while you're drinking. Or when you were when I was smoking, I don't think, and I doubt it, maybe you've had it happen, but did anybody ever come up to you and said, 
Why, my goodness, Betty, it's only ten in the morning. You're already smoking. <laughs> Do you take a smoke when you get out of bed in the morning? Do you smoke when you're alone? You know, I, it, it, it's ridiculous. They know that everybody who starts smoking is going to get hooked within a very short period of time, and they'll smoke every 15 minutes till they quit or die. But the alcoholic is different, and they don't understand it, nor, of course, do we. Uh, I better get the heck off that subject, though. Uh, I, I rented a car and drove all through the Boone and the other counties here and uh, looked at all the growing tobacco. I mean, I'm not... <laughs> I, I don't want to offend. Uh, I'm not against it at all. I, I'm literally, if it sounds like it from anything I say about alcohol or tobacco, I, I am not against those two industries. I mean... Everyone else talks about overpopulation, but they're the only ones trying to do something about it. I, I, I don't care. But I should move on to why we're here and uh, tell a little bit. I don't uh, talk too much about uh, my own story. I, I know it's considered typical to, to talk about your childhood or your past, even though I regard it as totally irrelevant. Uh, I was just lucky, it was all, to be an alcoholic. Uh, talking about your past gives you some, perhaps, perspective as to why you behave as you do insofar as your various character traits are. You know, I, I can't I remember one time riding an old car down a country road, a Model T probably, with my parents, and we came on a, the body of a little rabbit that had been run over by a preceding car. And my mother, being a gentle soul, looked at it and said, Oh, Donald, see the poor bunny rabbit dead on the road. And I looked at it, and maybe in my childish eye, a tear began to gather. My father, fearing a lack of manhood, said, All right, Donald, sing along with me. See the dead rabbit. Clap hands, clap hands. See the dead rabbit. Clap hands. Uh, so, so I, I clapped and cried for about ten miles. And, which has absolutely nothing, of course, to do with alcoholism, but it gives you some insight into why I don't know quite how to respond to given stimuli. Uh, and as for children of chaos, remember most of us start drinking in our teens, in our early teens. And adolescence is a form of insanity. Not for the alcoholic. I mean, this is just, it's true. Passing through the perils of puberty is the most horrible single period you will ever know in your entire life. Made more excruciating by the fact that people will say, you better enjoy, these are the good years. <laughs> I, I can still remember what it was like. Uh, and uh, and I, <laughs> I don't know who was, it was talking about. At that age is when sex begins to rear its beautiful and powerful head. 
And I, I still remember my my first sexual experience. I mean, it was I was terrified, and I was by myself. <laughs> and it, it's right then that most of us begin drinking. <laughs> and we get the two things totally joined together at the hip. You know. My friend uh, Jack Bailey used to do Queen for a Day, those of you who are old enough to remember that. Uh, he said the hardest thing he had to learn to do sober was make love to his wife uh, without alcohol. Yeah, we, we, we get all of that mixed up. Now, I, I should probably tell one story. It almost become a hallmark now, and there was some reference to it by people who listened to those damnable tapes. Uh, all right, I'll tell you a little bit about my drinking then. Uh, if you have tears, prepare to shed them now. Uh, <laughs> I'll preface, by, preface it by saying that I drank almost exclusively to relax. And on the occasion I'm about to describe, I'd been relaxed about a week. <laughs> and I awakened from a tormented, feverish sleep. There have been nightmarish dreams of Dante's Inferno, imps of the perverse. I could almost smell the sulfur. And I, I, I came to and I, I staggered to my feet and... Sure enough, I was actually drenched with perspiration. I thought, what, what's wrong? What is wrong here? It even dawned on me, maybe liquor played some role, but uh, I looked about and I saw that wasn't the case. I saw that I had arisen from a couch on which apparently I had passed, I had nodded off with a cigarette in my hand or mouth and it had fallen onto the covering of this couch. My family, having retired wherever it was they used to go at night, and and this cigarette had burnt through the outer covering down into the matting, into the tacking, where lacking oxygen to take flame, the embers had just slowly spread over the course of the night. And I realized there was nothing wrong with my drinking. I'd just been barbecued. <laughs> So commending myself for my perspicacity, I went into the kitchen, got a pitcher of water, came back and tried to pour it into that tiny little hole from which the smoke was arising. I achieved a rather spectacular cascade on the carpet, but uh, nothing more, so I knew more dramatic measures were demanded. I went into the kitchen, got a butcher knife, came back, slashed the couch open, opened it up, exposing the embers, and then was able to subdue them with the cooling balm of the water. The only thing was that it made acrid black smoke. I think it would have been 50 years ago. Half a century. A quarter of this nation's history. <laughs> uh, and I can still remember standing there, looking down at that slashed and sodden mass, and realizing almost to a certainty my wife was going to notice it. <laughs> she was a very keen-eyed woman. Uh, 
there was little that passed her ken around that house, I'll tell you. And though it was pre-Alanon, she would never intentionally say anything to assail the head of the house, emasculate the man of the family. But there were times in emotional stress when she would say things to me which were unkind, <laughs> cruel things even. Things which later, when she had calmed down, would cause her great remorse. And I wanted to spare her this. <laughs> I mean, she might say something like, you drunken son of a bitch, you did it again, didn't you? See? And, and I knew how that would make her feel. And, <laughs> but I didn't know quite what to do. And then it dawned on me, get it out of the house. I mean, she might vaguely remember there'd been something on that side of the room, but out of sight, out of mind. But it isn't really easy to move a couch when you should be checking into a sanitarium. See, but with that Herculean strength that comes only to the youthful, panic-stricken alcoholic... I somehow hefted that brute on my shoulder and lurched toward the front door. At that time, we were living on the second floor of an apartment building that had a very small porch. There were columns. I remember I virtually beat myself to death, caroming off the post, you know, trying to make the turn. Boom, 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 boom. But ultimately, I did succeed, and then I realized that, like Bobby Burns' mouse, Foresight had not been my long suit. There is virtually no place to conceal a couch in a typical apartment patio. So I'm standing there, legs trembling now. I should be in a hospital, but I'm moving furniture. And, and I remembered a creek about five miles away. So I staggered to my car, and I hefted that monster up on top of it and got in to drive to my selected place of repose. Now, all I have ever truly aspired to in life is dignity. I, I have not caviled a disaster when I could face it with dignity. But as I was driving down the street, by now it's daylight. Now, I don't know what time it is, but it was daylight. There were people at the bus stops, you know, lunch pails and briefcases and things. And as I drove along the street, I noticed that all of the heads turned and followed my progress. Eyes wide. Jaws agape. I thought, by golly, it doesn't take much to draw a crowd in California. I'll say that. I, I don't know. But, uh, until I chanced to pass in front of a dealership, auto dealership, that had a huge window that was dusty, and it acted exactly like a mirror. I got the reflection of what it was they were looking at. Here's a guy coming down the street, at a week's growth of beard. He's not only attired in a bathrobe. And, and on top of his car rests a couch, which had previously lacked oxygen enough to take flame, but going down the street, the wind was going through it like a billows, and the flames were 30, 40 feet in the air.
Now, prior to that moment, I had always been able to blame everything that happened to me on somebody else, (laughs) at least to an extent, because it is virtually impossible to come into conflict with society without some other member of society participating. You know, if he hadn't made a left turn, I wouldn't have hit him, which is true, but if I hadn't been an unguided missile coming down the street, (laughs) but you could always blame somebody else. But for the life of me, I could think of no way to blame my sleeping wife and children for having imperiled their lives, as they obviously had. But that's enough of that. Let's just say subsequently I was to move beyond social drinking. (laughs) In the concluding years of my drinking, I wasn't even getting into trouble with society anymore. I mean, how much trouble can you get into in a hotel room with a bottle of wine and a copy of Playboy? The maid doesn't step on you, you're reasonably safe. Uh, The only thing is, of course, you're dying in there. And so you try the program, and it works. I've never seen it fail. Literally, I've never seen the program fail. Most uh, number of people get drunk, of course, are enormous. Half the people in this room probably will be drunk before the year's out, statistically. Only one out of 20 make it now, just like when AA started. And uh, if anybody goes out from here and someone says, have you tried AA? Because most of the people who leave, they haven't tried it. No, unless you have taken it and written an inventory after getting down on your knees and prayed to something you probably don't believe in, and then wrote it up and told somebody about it, and anybody said, have you tried AA? Be honest, say, hell no, I haven't tried AA. Been to a lot of meetings, felt superior to all the speakers. <laughs> no, but I, I absolutely refuse to try the program. I wouldn't have the faintest idea whether it worked or not. <laughs> Strike that, Mr. Recorder. I mean, uh, if you could be that honest, you wouldn't be drunk. So there's no point in saying that. Uh, but I, I, the program indeed does work. It is not easy, obviously, but it's extraordinarily simple. You know, I, I've been to meetings where, where someone will say, for, if it's a question and answer meeting, and a shaky hand will go up and they'll say, how, how do you really stop drinking? You know, as if there was some kind of a magic to it. You know, as if Oral or his brother Anal was going to lay hands and say, Heal! Heal! You know, or as if some fairy was going to touch you with a magic wand. Which happened in West Hollywood one night. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was very pleasant. It didn't stop my drinking, but, uh, no. But it's so simple. It is as simple as the disease itself. If you can control the movement of your elbow, eternal sobriety is going to be yours. Nobody is going to drink it for you. Now, they may be newcomers so spastic-like, their arm hurls. <laughs> stop it. But if you can fend it off, eternal sobriety is going to be yours. But, 
most of us won't want to do it unless we get into the other aspects of the program. The changing of our attitudes. Our feelings, you know. I don't know why. Some were, the conversation I was having with someone today reminded me of an incident I hadn't thought about in some time. Which, in a way, tells us you know, to visualize this. You'll have to realize that there was a time when uh, I was not on the twilight side of life, of the hill, as it were. In fact, I was in the Army Air Corps during the war, and was briefly stationed down in Yuma, Arizona, which is not the most festive spot. <laughs> and one weekend, I was playing chess with another guy, and naturally, this being as exciting a thing as was going on there, people gathered around to watch the excitement. And a guy came up and sat down beside me to watch the game. Now, I have always had a fetish about mouth noises. I don't know why. Maybe it's because my parents or someone told me, don't slurp your soup, Donald. I just can't stand it. And this guy sat down beside me, he's eating an apple. And I reflected and was about to move when he took a bite. I thought, thank God I am not as other men are. Dress a monkey as you will, he remains a monkey still. I was spiritual even then, and <laughs> I made my move. My opponent in time replied. I was about to move again, and he took another bite. I said, three, God grant me the serenities, and to our fathers, and tried to forgive him. Made a move. My opponent replied. Once again, I was about to move, and I saw his hand come up toward his mouth. I stood up, and I backhanded him as hard as I could, rammed that apple right up his nose, smashed it, and I went down his nose, down his throat. He was choking and gagging, you know, and I was standing over him. <laughs> Boy, one damn move, I was going to punch him, cold cock him before he could get up and hurt me. And, uh, and he, he finally cleared his larynx enough for speech. And he looked at me and he asked a rather pertinent question. He said, why did you do that? <laughs> and I said, I'm always willing to elucidate and explain. Uh, I explained to him, I'm going to you a I'm going to kill you. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, well, if I was bothering you, why didn't you ask me to stop? And I said, because I didn't want to hurt your feelings, you dumb son of a bitch. <laughs> now, on a scale of one to ten, a man would probably rather have his feelings abraded than an apple thrust up his nose <laughs> in front of a room full of people. But that was as close as I could come to expressing myself. 
And if you can imagine, if you cannot, if a man cannot express those types of actions, those types of emotions that are almost lauded in our society, rage, hostility, anger, force, if you can't express that, how do you go about expressing love, tenderness, kindness, weakness? You know, you're totally frozen. And alcohol, for me, was the liberating thing. It would allow me at least to recognize and to some extent express it, but uh, never successfully. There's nothing, you know, I, I used to think the police like to arrest drunks because they seem to be doing it all the time. And I found out that that's not so. A drunk is about the worst arrest a policeman can make. You know, you arrest an ordinary criminal and he usually goes along because that's part of the price you pay. But you arrest a drunk, you don't know what's going to happen. I love you, officer. <laughs> Thin line of blue. Love you, officer. You know, and then two minutes later, run somebody, pop, take a swing at you. And then he gets in the back of your car and vomits. <laughs> Nothing works right when you're drinking. You know, we had a guy in Los Angeles one time rob 13 banks, cold sober. By himself. Well, no, he, one by, he had a newcomer he was working with. But, <laughs> but he was the honorary trustee of the North Hollywood Clubhouse. And they knocked over 13 banks, cold sober. I mean, they had the FBI, everybody was in town to, to see what was going on, the Treasury Department, they couldn't figure it out. They finally thought it was some gang flying in from Chai, striking and getting out. And when they finally found him, Chief Parker, with the chief of police, then was just incensed. He said, how could you guys have done that? You're absolute amateurs. You don't know anything about crime. How did you possibly get 13 banks? And he said, we, we just turned it over to God, and he planned the caper. <laughs> we were proud, I'll tell you that. Uh, but we had another guy, he used to talk about how when he was drinking, he robbed the bank. He wrote a note said, give me all your money. Signed his own name to it and gave it to the cashier. You know, rode home by a circuitous route and they're waiting when he got there. Uh, you do everything better sober. You really do. I don't know, of course. I have had a very extraordinary and ebullient life. Sometimes people say, why does your program seem more exciting than mine? I don't think my program is any better or worse than anybody else's. I do more things, perhaps. I was asking, I posed that question to him. I said, well, have you learned how to fly yet? And he said, no, I did. Went out to an old anachronistic flight school, took three hours, soloed, took the plane that afternoon, rode to San Francisco. It didn't have any instruments. I didn't know anything about navigation. I just flew over Highway 101. Ha, <laughs> worked the steps, you know. Uh, <laughs> took my first free fall parachute jump just before I became a grandfather about 30 years ago. I had to go in there running. When I quit smoking, uh, my lungs were so shot, they said you got to do something to try to re try revive what's left. And they recommended running. Now, there may be more despicable forms of locomotion than running. But I don't know them. I mean, all my life, you know, we were made to run laps if we goofed off during sports. And in the Army, you had to do double time with your pack if you screwed up. 
running. You know, all of my life I had seen runners, usually old men with gnarled, knobby knees with a sweatband around their heads, panting along the sides of highways. You know, I'd look at them and think, oh, that it should come to that. <laughs> they began to run about 30 years ago when the craze hit right in my neighborhood. And I lived in a fairly decent neighborhood, and I'd see them, and i think, God, I hope they won't steal anything. And... <laughs> A fanatic is anybody who's doing something a week before I start. <laughs> you may just be surprised how many distinguished ladies and gentlemen you can see out on the street in their underwear in the morning <laughs> once you become a runner. Uh, and I was, I was talking to Sean about it. Uh, you know, first time I remember leaving the house, I caught myself one night leaving the house. I was skipping. And I thought, uh-oh, what's wrong with that? God damn I hope the neighbors didn't see that. You know, I didn't skip as a boy. I've been called Mr. Gates since I was 13. I allow my intimates to call me sir. And I'm skipping. And I thought, what's wrong with me? And then I realized nothing was wrong with me. I had been running now for about a month, and instead of gasping and panting for 50 feet, every 50 feet, I had run a whole mile without stopping. And what was happening now was the endorphins were pumping. I was high. Can you imagine what happened then? If a mile will get you high, <laughs> about two, four, eight. Within the year, I was running half marathons. I had stress fractures, both feet, besides to hit my back gate out. I didn't have a moment free from pain after I got healthy. <laughs> Ended up running five marathons, 26 milers. See, now, I use, uh, Don Sean, I use the word run uh, in, as hyperbole. I mean, I really was giving more meaning to the word trudge, you know, kind of a survival shuffle. Uh, the expression justice is slow may have come from those who saw me. And I guess I ought to move on to that to tell you a little bit. Some of you know a little bit about my, my story, but... Uh, I have had an extraordinarily fortunate and, and lucky life. I, I had been working, my, my friend and mentor, Chuck Chamberlain, uh, he never sponsored anybody and he wouldn't, it would, because he had never been a, had a sponsor himself. And I adopted the same approach. I'll be your friend. You can fire your sponsor, but you can't fire your friend. And, Working with him gave me insight into one of the judges there. At, I'm working in, in an anonymous capacity with the uh, appellate courts. And one of the judges uh, asked if he could submit my name. And I said, uh, no. I don't think it would be a good thing. You don't realize. He said, well, I said, you know, I'm a member of AA. And he said, well, I know, but that's been sober a long time, haven't you? I said, well, a couple of decades or so. But uh, he said, well, no big deal. And I said, well, you don't quite realize it's not like stopping smoking. <laughs> There's considerably more wreckage of the past, and I don't want to disgrace you or anybody else. And he said, well, there's a statute of limitations to all things. 
And I, so I went down to talk to Chuck, my uh, friend, and he said, well, you're telling me that to be appointed to the appellate courts is not like a trial court where you don't want to be, uh, that this is a big deal, that they, somebody has to submit your name. And I said, yeah. He said, you don't have to submit your name, do you? No. And then somebody else is going to review it. Yes. You're not going to review it. No. You know, and then the governor is going to decide what to do about it, isn't he? Yeah. You're not. No. <laughs> he said, all of these people have things to do. You don't have a damn thing to do with it. Why don't you let them do their job? Let them do what they want. I said, all right. So about uh, three or four months later, I got a phone call. I pick it up, and somebody says, Hello, uh, Mr. Gates, yes, this is Governor so-and-so, and I wanted to talk to you about an appointment. I just, All right, asshole. You guys drinking out the club, huh? Drinking out that AA clubhouse now? <laughs> Who the hell is this, really? And No, honestly, this is the governor. <laughs> I'm sure he's the governor. Uh, And it was, and uh, and I, I was once he convinced me, I was appropriately appreciative. I said I'd try to work him into my next talk. Uh, and it, it is it is a remarkable thing. Uh, Tony here was reminding me apparently at the time he heard me talking uh, eighteen years ago or something. I had just come back from a a tour of English courts, and it had been a very impressive thing, because I was the highest ranking of the judges in the in the group. I was assigned to the courtroom of a lord. Over there, the appellate court judges are made lords, peers of the realm. And this judge, I think his name was Lord Farquharson. He. My wife, by the way, she went back to law school and passed the bar so she could criticize my decisions. And, <laughs> and so the two of us were in his courtroom, and he said, when I go out on the bench this afternoon, would you like to take the bench with me? And we said, well, certainly, it would be a high honor. And so he said, well, you'll have to excuse me while I don my raiment. You may find it a trifle ostentatious. Did the English appellate judges, they don't wear the humble black that we do. They wear scarlet. Scarlet with ermine around the collar and up the cuff. And they wear a full white wig. Not the little freshman dink the barristers wear, but the full wig. You know, and he puts on all of this regalia and buckles and bows and sashes. We walked out on that bench. We looked like a moving Christmas tree. I mean, he was red and white and I was just green with envy. <laughs> I later told our governor about that, too, about the Lord, and he didn't seem impressed, uh, nor did his successors. But the significant thing to me was, it was a criminal case, and in the dock, not more than six feet from me, was a guy charged with felonious assault. And 20 years ago, to the year, the exact year, I think it was, 
not maybe to the month and the day, I don't know, but 20 years ago, I had been standing in an American courtroom in handcuffs, charged with felonious assault and guilty. Now, if you were to put that into a soap opera, nobody would believe you. How do you go from the dock to sitting on the bench with an English lord, the barristers in their robes and their little wigs? I put it to you, me lord. You know, it, it just can't happen. There is no way that can happen. It is contrary to human experience, which is the definition of a miracle. You were to put, I think if you put that in a soap opera, they'd laugh you off the air. It just cannot happen. But that sort of miracle happens all the time in AA. Not that particular one, which may seem dramatic in some ways, but in a miracle does occur. I heard a woman speak at a meeting a while back who had been the victim of abuse by her parents, and she had abused her own children since she came on the program. And she now stopped, and they were having a loving and happy relationship. I'd much rather see that horrible cycle of child abuse broken than see some nut made a judge. These miracles do happen, and they are contrary to human experience. The I'd like to say that I, I have changed, and I really haven't changed all that much. I've learned to laugh at myself, which is the greatest change that could... <laughs> I don't drink, of course, which is the greatest change that can come into the life of an alcoholic, and I've learned to laugh at myself, which if you don't do, by the way, will cause you to miss the greatest joke in your own generation, I, I suspect. <laughs> But other than that, I still am very much the same person I was before. And AA has worked its way into every area of our lives, at least it has into mine. I, I think it was uh, Brian who was talking about how every group does things slightly differently. The way they say the Lord's Prayer, they say it in a different cadence, but they say it. Uh, well, they always say it. There are certain places in the South where it is actually considered not only acceptable, but witty to begin by saying, whose father? In fact, I was at a meeting in Texas one time, and a guy said, and a guy said, who's sleeping with our mother? There's kind of a stunned silence. And, and then everybody says, our father, who are, you know, AA creeps into everything we do. We have our litany. We have our catechism, as it were. Uh, we identify each other with our inwards. And we're in a line, you know, and, and you bump into somebody going out of the department store, and oh no, go ahead. first things first. No, no, easy does it. Oh, your friend of Bill. You know, and, and I, you know, I found it now coming into my work. When I at the appellate courts, not only did everything I decide to publish become binding law on 33 million people in California, but it appears in every law library in the United States and I gather in English-speaking countries. And AA begins to creep in. You know, I, I We say things in the law archaic like his complaint sounds in tort, or it sounds in contract, or it sounds in equity. I don't know why we say that. Probably Blackstone said it 300 years ago and somebody said, that's a grabber. And we've been doing it ever since. It, all it means is he's trying to state a cause of action, his case, in a certain field of law. And I, I remember I wrote a decision one time and said, 
No point would be served in analyzing appellate's complaint in detail. Suffice it to say it sounds in self-pity and resentment, but states no cause of action known to the law. <laughs> I, I, I even said in one, in law as in life, half measures avail us nothing. <laughs> and my colleagues say, where do you get those phrases? I don't know. They just pop, pop, pop. And in oral, argu oral argument, they come in once a month and sound and fury signifying nothing, and uh, I, I'm not good at that. I, I remember one one time I maybe my prostate was acting up or something, and uh, a young attorney he popped off too much, and I zinged him. Now in the appellate course, the only people in the audience are lawyers, and lawyers are always able to rise above the suffering of others. <laughs> and so they all laughed at this guy, which set me off. I immediately went into my Don Rickles mode, you know, and I continued to zing him. Now, sarcasm ill behooves any human being, and it is absolutely unforgivable in a judge because people have to pretend to respect you. <laughs> but I hit him, and uh, when I went home that night, I absolutely couldn't sleep. I, I was thought about what I had done, I was sick to my stomach. There was this young guy, he's finally going to appear before the appellate court, probably brought his family down to watch him. He approaches the lectern, his hands knuckle, his voice breaks as he begins to speak, and one of these black robed figures leads forward, you know, and jams him. Uh, I, I really felt terrible, and so I, next morning I, I got on the phone, and I found out which law firm he was worth, found out where he was working, got hold of him, and I said, I want the Judge Gates I want you to know that you wrote a brilliant beef brief in your case, and I'm sure you would have given an equally magnificent argument if I'd allowed you to do it. But I didn't. I made a complete fool of myself, and I just hope you'll forgive me. Young kids learn to ride bicycles. I have to learn to ride the bench. I haven't done it yet, and I hope you'll forgive me. Oh, thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, thank you, oh, thank you. No, I didn't say this to help him, really. I said it because our program says when you are wrong, you promptly admit it. It does not add unless you're a judge. <laughs> but this erring tongue that uh, was mentioned is there. I, I, you know, because I haven't changed it. I, I remember sitting on the California Supreme Court, seven of us in our black robes, six deadly seriously, Serious outwardly and apparently inwardly. One stern on the outside, but inwardly thinking, Oh, God, if they could only see me down at the club tonight. <laughs> and, and one guy was, his client had killed several people, and he was arguing, he wanted us not to be too hard on his client just because he hadn't been entirely truthful when he had been arrested. And I heard myself, or at least someone from where I was seated, lean forward and say to him, Do not worry, Counselor, we all realize that murder often leads to lying. Fortunately, I didn't, Dad, and if he doesn't cut it out, he'll start drinking and be in real trouble. 
don't want to make it sound, by the way, uh, many of you, I'm sure, will have or have had or right at this moment may be having terrible times. You're not going to get through life all joyous and free. I've had my share of it. No two-legged beast ever gets out of the forest without tragedy. About six years ago, my lovely little wife came home, interrupted a burglar. He smashed her in the face, broke the bones in her face, took her plastic surgeries to put her back together. He wasn't out to get me. He just happened to be hit our, he's loaded on crack and he happened to pick our house. Now he may make this program someday. I hope he does. Certainly needs it. And he'll probably be a speaker right away. <laughs> if you've got anything going for you, anything dramatic, you know, like being a, a, a priest or a doctor, you know, or an axe murderer, You'll get thrown up on a Hollywood actor. You know, you get thrown up on the podium right away. I did the central office stick for L.A. for some many years ago, and I get calls. And we're having a convention. Do you have any motion picture stars who could come and speak? No, they don't ask how long they've been sober, just a motion picture star. And I'd say, well, I don't know. I'll check the sanitarium, see who might be out. Uh, <laughs> But this guy, he'll, he will probably be a speaker and have a funny story. Yeah, I'm riding through the valley, you know, and I, I need a fix. I pick a house. What do you buy luck? I get a judge. <laughs> not only a judge, but an appellate court justice. His wife came home, power, put her in the hospital. <laughs> I don't know if I'll laugh, but I'm not going to sponsor him. <laughs> Less than two years after that, uh, my stepmother, a woman in her 80s, somebody burglarized her house and raped her. Grabbed her by the face, ruined her cataract surgery. Less than two years after that, someone burglarized the home of my mother, lived in a very small little town, and murdered her. In the world, it is the old world yet. Rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, because we stop sucking on the jug doesn't mean it's going to stand up on tippy toes to avoid upsetting our tender psyche. You might say, why would it happen to my wife? She'd spent 25 years at that time. NAA working with people who had this problem. The thing is, why not? Why should we be spared? Maybe we can even understand it better. I don't know. But it isn't personal. I've seen no evidence that life is to be taken seriously. I've seen no evidence that it's to be taken personally. What I really want ever to say in these talks is, get out there and do it, for God's sakes. Life is so short. I had a heart attack just a few weeks ago. I, I didn't tell a committee because they'd already paid the airfare. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I got my bottle of nitro in case somebody uh, acts up. Uh, I'll throw it. Uh, in 50 years, everybody in this room will be dead. You know, we rise like bubbles in champagne. Pop, we're gone. To have missed it, to not have lived, it doesn't really matter what you do, just get out and do it, please. A poet one time said, into the fires of spring, your winter garment of repentance fling. The bird of time has but a little way to flutter, and the bird is on the wing. My bird has very little ways to fly, and I don't want to miss a single beat of those wings, and I... Hope many of you will stick around and we'll fly together.